Hello and welcome. The Portavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World welcomes you to another episode of our podcast, Legacies of Ancient Persia. Join us as we further explore the many legacies of ancient Persia and its relevance to global patrimony. everyone and welcome to another episode of Legacies of Ancient Persia. This week our guest is Dr. Jake Nabel, a professor of classics at Pennsylvania State University. In this episode, Dr. Nabel provides a short introduction to the Parthian Empire and who we should know, discuss the unique challenges to studying the Parthians since most texts are from the Greeks and Romans, and ponder why the Parthians are often left out of modern media and how we can start to change that. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give our show a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast this morning. I would love to start us off and ask, how did you get into ancient studies? Like, was your path pretty conventional? Did it start off in college and just sort of build? Did it come earlier? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. I, I look forward to um, to the conversation. My path to ancient Iran was kind of a, um, a long and winding one, I guess I would say. Before I could get there, first I had to get into the ancient world uh, to begin with. And I was actually not one of these people who, uh, you know, read Greek myths all throughout their childhood or took like six years of Latin before starting undergrad. I really had... Um, no clue what I would major in when I uh, started my undergraduate education. Uh, My entry point to the ancient world was just uh, a great instructor. His name was William Mullen at at Bard College, where I went to college. And the first class I took with him my first semester was called Confucius and Socrates. Of course, as a classicist, he was much more conversant with the Greek literature than with the Chinese classical literature. But that class really did leave, I would say, a pretty strong mark on my subsequent trajectory because, you know, I I was doing the ancient Mediterranean. And, you know, after that class, like many people do, I just sort of got bit by the classics bug and, you know, took Greek and, and then things kind of snowballed from there. But it always stuck with me, I think, that my first experience doing quote unquote, classical literature was in tandem with another great ancient civilization, in that case, ancient China. And uh, subsequent coursework I had was in that vein. Also, I had another class on ancient Greek and Indian philosophy and political thought. So I did end up majoring in classics, but always, you know, for me, that was always a comparative and intercultural sort of venture where you didn't just do Greece and Rome, you did them in tandem with other ancient cultures. So I guess fast forward a few years to graduate school. I I went to grad school for classics and did mostly Greek and Roman history. And as I was kind of casting about for a dissertation topic, I started in the kind of Hellenistic East with the Seleucid Empire, one of the successor empires to Alexander the Great in the East, uh, including the Iranian plateau. And I landed on interstate relations, which was a topic that had interested me a lot up until that point, between the Roman Empire, which is, of course, in the kind of comfort zone of classics, and the Parthian Empire. 
And Parthia is a really interesting empire in, in world historical perspective. It comes out of the kind of decay and collapse of the Seleucid Empire and the, the sort of last gasp of Hellenism in the East, but it also has roots in Central Asia and in the more uh, ancient traditions of the Iranian plateau. And as I sort of surveyed the literature on this topic, I just sort of noticed this is not a really well understood or at very least uh, an empire that is not much written about and discussed in Western scholarship. So, so I saw that there was sort of room to operate there and room to do new kinds of work. And I would say the main theme of my scholarly life since then has been using Near Eastern and Iranian sources to try to understand the Parthian Empire better, both on its own terms and to the degree that it interacted with the Roman Empire. And that, I would say, is, is the journey that I've been on up until this point. That's really, really cool. So just to set the background for people who I don't know, I mean, I, from personal experience, really didn't get into the Persians beyond the Persian Wars as a classics major, right? They teach us the Greek side and then don't really do anything else. So teaching sort of cross-cultural things, it's it's hard to get to as an undergrad. I feel like there's just not enough time if you don't have something dedicated to it. So just to set the stage a little bit for the conversation, the Parthians come later. And I think if people are going to be familiar with the Persians, it's probably going to be the Achaemenids. I mean, that's where you have the Dariuses and the Xerxeses that people have seen in modern adaptations and other things. So can you just walk us through a, a mini history lesson, right, on how do we get from the Achaemenids to the Parthians? Sure. Well, yeah, the, the starting point, as you note, is with the Achaemenid Persian Empire, which has always been an extremely important empire from the classical point of view. When our Greek literature begins, when the literary texts that are so important to the field of classics when they begin with authors like Herodotus and Thucydides and this flowering of literary activity that we see mostly in Athens in the 5th century BCE, Greece is a relative backwater uh, at this point in time where the real money and the real political power lay was in an empire to the east of the Greeks that had its genesis and its heartland in the southwestern Iranian plateau. In the second half of the 6th century BCE, a, a great conqueror named Cyrus uh, comes out of this empire, and before his career is ended, uh, he has put together an empire of sort of a global scale, the likes of which the world really hadn't seen up until that point. And he and his successors would rule not only the Iranian plateau, but also Mesopotamia in the West, huge portions of Asia Minor in the West, Egypt in the West, and in the East, Central Asia and parts of what the ancients called India and what is today uh, roughly Pakistan. So that is kind of the real leading power in the area at the point in time when classics sort of has its has its heyday when the, the texts that are really important to and central to the field of classics begin and, and when they pertain to. Now, that state of affairs lasts for a very long time. Greece remains relatively politically at least divided uh, among a number of city-states, Athens and Sparta being the best known. Thebes becomes important later on in the fourth century. 
And that state of affairs lasts for quite a long time, really to the end of the fourth century BCE, when a new power rises to the north of Greece, and this is the kingdom of Macedonia. The most important Macedonian kings, at least in the, the story as we usually tell it, are Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great. And Philip arguably has kind of learned some of the lessons, both of the classical Greeks and of the Achaemenid Persians. He's learned about certain um, matters of administration and finance from Greece, but he's also learned about empire building from the Persians. And in a number of campaigns that he begins, but his son Alexander ultimately carries through to their conclusion, he conquers not only Greece, but pretty much the entire territory of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. This lasts down to 323 BCE when Alexander the Great dies. Uh, and when Alexander the Great dies, his generals almost immediately begin feuding over the remnants of his empire. For our purposes, the main empire to come out of Alexander's death is called the Seleucid Empire, named after one of Alexander's generals, Seleucus. And Seleucus and his descendants ruled the Iranian plateau for, you know, about 100 years after Alexander's death. It takes them some time to establish themselves, but uh, but eventually they end up with the Iranian plateau, Mesopotamia, and parts of Asia Minor. And it's out of the Seleucid Empire that the Parthians first kind of make their step onto the world historical stage. This is in 248 BCE. They start out uh, just with sort of a series of local rebellions against the Seleucids, but before long, they end up taking the Iranian plateau and Mesopotamia, and they stick around for a really long time. Uh, out of the three great empires, which are normally included in pre-Islamic Iranian history, the Achaemenids, the Parthians, and then later the Sasanians, the Parthians are actually around for the longest period of time, 248 BCE all the way to 224 CE. So it's an extremely long-lived empire. It becomes the main sort of imperial rival and interlocutor of Rome. And it forges a template that subsequent Iranian empires will follow even after it's gone. Yeah, no, thank you for walking us through that. It was very helpful to me, especially. But also, I'm I'm wondering, okay, so we I could name several kings from the Achaemenid Empire. Now, who, in your opinion, right, would be some of the big names to know from, from the Parthian Empire? Because I don't really know who I would say if I was asked to name a famous king. And for non-specialists outside the field, I highly seriously am suspect whether anyone could name someone as well. Yes, fair enough. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. And it's a very interesting question because it makes us ask, how do we break down and characterize Parthian political history? Does it have these big personalities in the same way that other empires do? Does it have an Alexander the Great? Does it have a Cyrus the Great? Does it have a Darius, the great king of the, the Persian Empire, who was sort of the consolidator of earlier conquests? Well, I'll give you a few kings that may be the sort of highlight reel uh, in as much as there is one for Parthian history. The most important king far and away, if only because all the subsequent kings take his name when they take the throne, is Arsakes I or Arshak I. He is the founder of the empire and the founder of the dynasty. 
that presides over it. The thing that really gave the Parthian Empire most of its coherence was the empire's unification under the umbrella of the Arsacid dynasty. From the first day of the empire all the way to the end, each of its kings took the throne name of Arsaces. Arsaces I didn't actually conquer all that much. It actually seems like maybe what he sort of did was to launch a kind of semi-successful rebellion against the Seleucids, against the, the Hellenistic successor kingdom that had preceded him. But he remains throughout Parthian history, the indispensable, the sort of OG king to whose example all the others aspire in as much at least as that they take his name and they pattern themselves after his rulership. Uh, maybe the second name I would, would give you is Mithridates II or Mirdad II, as he'd be called in, in Parthian and Iranian language. He is the great conqueror. He gives um, the Parthian Empire the shape that it will have for the rest of its history. His conquests are in the second century BCE. He's he's the one who really consolidates and takes parts of the Iranian plateau, Mesopotamia. And it's really when the, the Parthian Empire moves into Mesopotamia and takes over cities like Babylon that have that are both very wealthy, very rich, and have very deep administrative traditions. At that moment, a lot of Parthian historians would say the empire really comes into its own. It really arrives as an imperial force. So he's in the, the second century BCE as, as probably one of the greater conquerors. And then the last name I'd give you is uh, Valgash or Vologaises. The first, he's he's well known mainly from the text of Cornelius Tacitus, who was a Roman writing in the Roman Empire. That's something we can talk about. It's unfortunate, but a, a lot of our evidence for Parthian history does come from Greek and Roman authors who not only uh, never set foot in Parthia, they didn't actually know all that much about it. But that's a, a situation we have to live with. Anyhow, Volgash or Vologaises I is uh, arguably a kind of epical king in that he presides over a kind of shift in the public presentation and the ruling image of the Arsacid dynasty. It's under him that we start to see the coins of the Arsacid kings transition from Greek, which was the language they had been in almost without exception all the way to the first century CE. At the point in time when Valgash takes power, that's the beginning of a transition, not only in coins, but in other kinds of media as well, away from Greek and towards Parthian, a Middle Iranian language, and one that belongs to the Iranian language family. Uh, so he is kind of, it's, it's really tough to know where to pinpoint that shift and, and say, you know, it was due to this king that it took place. Certainly that's a kind of long, gradual and um, complicated process. But in as much as we can kind of associate it perhaps with one particular ruler and his reign, he would be a good candidate to um, to associate that change with. So those are, I would say, three, you know, three of the better known names. Of course, better known is a relative term, especially in Parthian history. Yeah, I mean, I'm just happy that I'm going to take away three people that I should probably know about or learn more about now that I know their names. So now thank you. I, we know who to look up. Yay. So yeah, I want to bounce off of what you said about the, the texts, right? So I think, especially coming from a classics background, 
we have so many texts from Greek and Roman history. And the more I talk to people who study other periods and aspects of any of the Persian empires say, you know, it, it depends. It's an ebb and flow. Some periods you'll have more textual evidence, some you don't. And so I'm curious. I know that for a lot of research for Achaemenist studies, you do actually have to also go back to the Greek sources. And so how much textual evidence is there really from the Parthians that is non-Greek or Roman? Because I'm, I'm just going to assume that the majority is Greek and Roman. So if, say, someone wanted to go in and study the Parthians, how much could they do that if they didn't approach it from a classics background? Yeah, great question. Well, I guess maybe the simplest way to answer that is um, on my on the bookshelf behind me, I have a three volume set, both in original languages and in German translations of what the authors saw as every primary source that had to do with Parthian history. And basically one of those three volumes, each one of which is about I'm speaking off the cuff here. I don't know if this is exactly right, but I think about six to seven hundred pages or so. One of those three volumes is classical authors, so-called, uh, writing in Greek and in Latin. Now, the, those other two volumes, a lot of that stuff does come from the territories internal to the Parthian Empire. So there are texts. It's not that there aren't. And, you know, learning all of the languages and covering all the different kind of textual traditions that those texts are composed in, that's a really tall order, and it's still a, a fairly large, um, you know, body of evidence to master. However, not all of that comes from the territories internal to Parthia. There are other sources which either post-state the empire, so we have later authors living under, let's say, the Sasanian period, writing about the Parthians or even authors writing after the Arab conquest. So now we're, now we're talking centuries after the Parthian Empire ended. There's some evidence from historians writing in Arabic or in classical or new Persian. There's also a certain body of, of Chinese sources about the Parthians. So um, not all of that evidence is internal. And a major, major obstacle in Parthian history is that we really have almost nothing that was produced by, I guess, what we would call the kind of central or the the metropolitan perspective. The, the core of the Parthian Empire is the Arsacid dynasty, the Arsacid kings, and a relatively small circle of Parthian noble families who rose to power with them. We really have basically no texts from the point of view of the kings and the other members of the empire's ruling classes. That's a very, very difficult perspective to be in. Now, I don't want to be totally nihilistic about that or, or pessimistic about the, the prospect of understanding things from the Parthian point of view. There are some inscriptions in Greek or in Parthian that we can use from that perspective. There is a certain amount of documentary evidence, so sort of administrative texts. One of the biggest archives from indigenous Parthian territories is the Nysa Ostraka archive, which is a set of texts, pretty extensive. It amounts to several thousand documents, but it's all about wine deliveries. Now, 
that's useful for certain kinds of history. It tells you a good deal about viticulture. It tells you about farming practices, land tenure practices, uh, accounting practices, and things like that. But this is not the same thing as having, you know, a, a first-person account of Parthian imperialism written from the perspective of an Arsacid king or somebody at the court of an Arsacid king. So the, the challenge, I would say the central challenge of Parthian history is both to try to master and exploit to its fullest potential the relatively limited corpus of evidence from what is internal to Parthian territory, you know, indigenous sources um, on the one hand, and on the other, trying to integrate the perspectives of external authors, be they Arabs and Persians writing after the Arab conquests, or Chinese analysts writing from obviously a, a, a geographically remote location relative to the core Parthian territories, or also very problematic is how do we handle sources written in Greek and in Latin in the Mediterranean by people who never set foot in Parthia and who in many cases have a major ax to grind. The, the Parthians are both their imperial interlocutors, but also their rivals. Roman Parthia fight. Uh, they fight quite a lot. It's not to say their relationship was entirely characterized by rivalry, but the Romans had ample reason for giving the Parthians, you know, not quite a fair shake in their literary texts. So the major, yeah, pr problem or the major set of challenges in Parthian history is to work with both the meager set of sources from what's internal to the empire and then to know what to do with the external perspectives which contain valuable information but uh certainly not unproblematic information so it's interesting because now we have a limited corpus of, of stuff from the parthians themselves so for someone who wants to study them what languages would you recommend someone take because we now have sort of sources from a whole host of different places so does it really depend on like the subject and the approach because you said there there were some Chinese sources and obviously you have the Greek and Roman so does it is it really dependent on kind of where you want to go that will determine the languages you learn it does and and not only um what maybe what geographical location you're interested in but also the the period that you're interested in the parthian empire is around for a very long time you know 248 bce to 224 ce we're talking about you know five cent five centuries of history um so different languages will give you more or less insight into different periods you ask a great question you know if you, if you want to do this, how do you train and, and where do you focus your energy? All of us only have, you know, a limited amount of time to, to work with ancient languages. Yeah. Which basket do we put our eggs in if, if we want to understand the Parthian Empire? If you're interested in, in the earlier periods of Parthian history, so let's say from the empire's inception in 248 BCE down to, let's say, the end of the first century BCE or so, Akkadian, the, the language of ancient Mesopotamia and especially Babylon, where a lot of the later cuneiform evidence comes from, Akkadian is a, is a very useful one to know. There was a group of scholars that sat in, um, in ancient Babylon recording 
the, cele- the the movement of the celestial bodies in the sky. That was their primary obligation and their primary task. And they produced a corpus of evidence called the Babylonian Astronomical Diaries. For Parthian history, it's actually a really significant corpus because as they logged the movements of the heavenly bodies, they also included various kinds of notes about political history and major sort of battles that were fought, the movements of different kings from here to there, the the kind of big events in high politics. Um, So actually, the Babylonian Astronomical Diaries in Akkadian, down to the end of the first century BCE, that's a really important source for Parthian history, and it's it's it really is quite consequential. If you're working on the later centuries of Parthian history, down to, let's say, the third century CE, that's another great question. One candidate would be to learn Parthian and Middle Persian. Those are the, the, the sort of the two forms of the Persian language which are most in use between roughly the third century BCE to the end of pre-Islamic Iranian antiquity, down to the seventh century CE. Parthian and Middle Persian will allow you to read a handful of inscriptions from the Parthian period. And once you move into the Sasanian period, they'll allow you to read Middle Persian texts. And although the Sasanians were a subsequent dynasty, there's a lot of things they did differently than the way the Arsakids managed them. Um, And it certainly is a new era of pre-Islamic Iranian history. There's still quite a lot you can do. You can try to work backwards from the Sasanians to the Parthians and say, you know, ask yourself, well, what elements of culture, politics, kingship, religion remained, you know, in, in continuous use from the Parthian into the Sasanian period? So Parthian and Middle Persian texts are quite important from that point of view. You can learn a lot about the Zoroastrian religion, for instance, from those texts. You can read a handful of royal inscriptions, which will tell you how the kings regarded themselves. Um, And you can read some documentary texts as well. You might also think, if you're working on late Parthian history, you might also think about Armenian because all, after the Arsakids kind of get booted from the Iranian plateau, they still maintain control of Armenia for uh, another, well, depending on uh, how you date their advent there, for another 300 years or so. The Arsakids take Armenia in 63 CE, and they hold it all the way into the 5th century CE. So the Arsakids are still around, and they're still you know, serving as kings of a kingdom, in Armenia all the way until late antiquity. And there are Armenian literary texts and Armenian literary histories from late antiquity, which um, arguably can tell you a whole lot about the Arsakids and the way they operated as kings. And then, of course, the the last answer to your question, and, and maybe I'm being a little deceptive by not giving it first, because this was my entry point into Parthian history, is to do Greek and or Latin because especially for the earlier centuries, the core of our knowledge of Parthian political history does come from authors like Tacitus, Cassius Dio, Plutarch, and all of them are Greek and Roman authors writing in 
Greek and Latin texts that are, you know, are, are well known within the classical tradition, and they're tremendously important. There's no getting around their absolute core importance to Parthian history. So obviously, it's it's very difficult for one person to do all of those things in one scholarly career to say nothing of one stint as an undergrad or even uh, as a graduate student. Um, I think it's it's uh, it sort of depends on when you're what period you're interested in you know when your interests lie and also where they lie are you interested in urban administration in mesopotamia then stick with akkadian are you interested in royal inscriptions or zoroastrianism go with middle persian uh, are you interested in foreign relations with rome greek and latin are probably your best bets in that case it's tough to balance all these priorities and possibilities, but all of them go into, you know, making Parthian history and, and doing it well. But that's what makes it so fascinating. I think, you know, there's coming from classics, there's something to be said about, okay, it's pretty easy. I do Greece or I do Rome and then you just pick Greek or Latin and then you're like, okay, great. I have access to this. But it is quite fascinating when you have something larger for a very long period of time that kind of goes all over. So, you know, it's it's kind of like a fun scavenger hunt of when, where, what. It's it it sounds fascinating. Now, I do want to segue this into. So, I did know that you created the Parthian Sources Online Digital Library. Could you talk a little about this? And you know, what type of texts are people likely to find there if they want to go and look it up? Sure. Well, I. I guess I created the site for people like me, kind of, that is as people who were training in an ancient language that wasn't Iranian, that wasn't Parthian or Middle Persian, which were the forms of Iranian that were spoken during the Parthian Empire. And uh, Middle Persian is, is that's the, the language of the Sasanians who come after, but they're really, there are distinct dialects, but you can learn and study them at the same time. The morphology is similar enough that you can do both at the same time. And, you know, it isn't like learning two languages you can you can consolidate. And I think for people who have studied Greek or Latin, as I had up until that point in time, these are, you know, the, the languages are relatively simple grammatically. If you're used to a highly inflected language like Greek or Latin, where you have to learn, you know, a lot of cases, and um, if you don't control the morphology of nouns and and conjugations of verbs very well, you're you're not going to make much sense of the language. But if you come from that point of view and you have some experience grammatically dealing with languages like that, um, you can do you can read a Parthian inscription relatively quickly and relatively easily. Unfortunately, the language learning resources out there are somewhat lacking. There's a there's a very nice grammatical introduction and a sort of textbook written by Prudz Oktar Shervo of, of Harvard University, which anyone can download for free online. And if you're willing to, to put in a little bit of time with that textbook and, you know, a couple of other uh, grammatical resources, it's, uh, it's again, for someone who's, you know, read some Greek or, or Latin, 
or who's done another ancient language like Hebrew, let's say, or um, or Akkadian or Egyptian, you can read a primary source in Parthian relatively quickly. So the, the point of the website was to bring together some of the more interesting texts in Parthian, in the Parthian language. And there are a few up there in Parthian. And it just sort of is a, a little chichi for getting up on those and reading them in the original. The basic idea was to do what the Perseus project did uh, and have each word be a clickable gloss where you click it and a little dictionary entry pops up that will give you a, a, a sort of basic set of information about the word. And it'll especially tell you if you were to look it up in the dictionary, it will look like this. And I think... Yeah, it's it's a reasonable resource for looking at some primary sources from the Parthian Empire in Parthian relatively quickly. And, and that's what it aims to be. It also has some text in Greek because uh, Greek was a, a very important language, not just within the Parthian Empire, but to the Arsacids themselves, the, the kings who ruled it. Their coins are in Greek until the first century CE and then even afterward as well. So there are some texts in Greek, too. And because there's not really um, a kind of convenient source book for Parthian in the way that for the Achaemenid Empire, there is. There's a great corpus of sources edited by Amelie Kurt, and that can, you know, expose you and, and introduce you very quickly to what kinds of primary texts you have from the Achaemenid Empire. I sort of hope eventually, um, in the fullness of time, once the archive grows a little bit, that Parthian sources can be a, a kind of corollary for the Parthian Empire. I mean, it sounds like a fantastic resource, although I think the big question for me is, is it fair to say that this is more for scholars and not so much meant for general public use, you know, for someone kind of outside the field who may or may not have experiences with one or any of the languages? It's a it's a good question. And as far as I can tell, the site does have some use among scholarly communities, but also uh, in the general reading public. I think one reason it's potentially of use to, to the wider community is that every text is translated. So there are English translations of every text provided. The site is useful, I think, if nothing else, because it gives you a translation of the inscription of Shapur I at the Kabayat Zardusht, it's a, it's a very well-known Sasanian inscription uh, that is trilingual. There's a version in Middle Persian, one in Greek, and then one in Parthian. And the Parthian version I have online, that's a very well-known text in ancient history, generally speaking. I think not only in ancient Iranian history, but it's a, a monumental inscription that is well-known among the wider you know, community, I would say. So there's a translation of that. And not only is there a translation of the text, there's a short introduction to what the text is. So, you know, where it is, who wrote it, and what the text itself actually covers. And each source, which is on the, the website, has a, a very, very brief introduction written, I hope, in an accessible manner, such that you know, anyone with a general interest in the period can go and you don't necessarily have to understand everything the text says, because there are lots of things about reading ancient texts that are difficult. They're, they're full of names that not everybody will know, or um, they'll allude to events that not everybody will have read about in a history book. But by giving you a sort of overview of what the text is and its significance uh, in Parthian history, 
hopefully it, it makes it an accessible resource. There's also a, a, a very short essay that tells you just who the Parthians were and what their place in world history was. And again, for a relatively understudied empire, arguably, hopefully, that's a, a useful resource to have. Yeah, I mean, it sounds great. I definitely want to check it out more. I've been able to look at it briefly. But yeah, I, I definitely would like to look at it, what what's all there. And I and I hope that people will go and, and feel inspired to go check it out as well. Now, I am also curious to know because we've talking we've been talking a lot about the literature, the literary approach and, and studying the Parthians through the different lit that exists out there. In terms of, you know, say you are interested in material culture, archaeologists, or you just want to see places. Now, a lot of the trouble with studying the Persians anyway is access to be able to travel to a lot of the sites in Iran. But if you study the Parthians, and let's just say for argument's sake, right, that you do the later stuff. And so you you decided you went to school and learned Armenian. Armenia, you can travel to. So are there a lot of sites? Is there a lot of material evidence still there that you can go and study? Is it more helpful to go? Well, not more helpful, but could it be very helpful to go there? Or is studying the Parthian Empire still kind of like you really would want to try to go to more Iran proper? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question. And um, it's it's one of absolutely pivotal importance for the subject. Parthian archaeology is, I would say, you know, not as well represented in the material record as adjacent periods of pre-Islamic Iranian history. I mentioned the inscription of Shapur I. That's at a site in, in southwestern Iran. That is a big, spectacular, well-known monument from the Sasanian Empire, the, the last empire of pre-Islamic Iran. And then if we went back to the Achaemenid period, there are sites like Behistun or Persepolis in Iran, which, again, are just big monumental installations, which are well known, not just among ancient historians, I think, but anyone who has a, a sort of familiarity with the long durée history of pre-Islamic Iran. The Parthian Empire doesn't really have a Behistun inscription or a Shapur inscription at the Kabayat Zardush. It doesn't have a, a really famous monumental installation from the territory of the modern day nation of Iran. That's not to say there aren't any remnants. Of course, there are. There are a few uh, reliefs on cliffs. There are a couple of inscriptions, although some of them now are, are not uh, in such a good state as they were when they were first discovered. There are some things to see. There's just less than there would be for the Achaemenid period or the Sasanian period. And of course, this is a problem that pertains to the exploration and uh, the funding of new archaeological work. There are a number of challenges to mention there. One is that, of course, because travel between Iran and the United States is very difficult, this also makes scholarly exchange between those two countries more difficult. And scholars of ancient Iran working in America really face a kind of uphill battle if we want to know about the sort of current state of archaeological research in 
Iran. You know, certainly part of that is on American historians because there aren't uh, too many who who speak Persian or who can read archaeological excavation reports in Persian, and that's quite an important thing. But uh, the, the overarching challenge is just that there are barriers. There are political barriers to scholarly exchange. So if you're a, a student of the Parthian Empire, if you can go to Iran, of course, you there's lots of, you know, rich finds from Parthian history that you can see there. But obviously, it's a it's a challenging thing for Americans to do. You know, I hasten to add many American historians of pre-Islamic Iran and of the Parthian Empire have been to Iran. There are ways to go there. But, you know, in the broader tapestry of places to travel to, it's it's one with challenges for researchers in the West. And another kind of pitfall of the fact that scholarly exchange is, is diminished is that one thing Western archaeologists can do if they work in, let's say, Egypt or Turkey, is they can come and they can fund archaeological work. I mean, that's that's often a very important ingredient that scholars from the United States have when they find local partners in in Egypt or in Turkey. They come and they bring funding and that archaeological work can take place for that reason because it's funded. That's not possible with Iran because of the various financial sanctions that have been levied by the U.S. This makes it impossible for Americans to go with funding to excavate sites that are very deserving of further excavation and further study uh, with Iranian partners, of course. So that's a lamentable situation. And and I think the best we, we can say for now is, is hopefully it will improve in the future. As for other regions, um, there is very rich Parthian archaeology to be found in Central Asia, in, in countries like Uzbekistan, for instance, and, and their travel for Western scholars and participation in archaeological excavations is easier. And you can learn quite a lot about important sites like Nysa, for instance, uh, which are absolutely pivotal to early Parthian history, that archaeological work is possible. And frankly, I think will be one of the most important new sources of information that can potentially change some of the entrenched narratives in Parthian history or pre-Islamic Iranian history more generally. And then, of course, you mentioned Armenia, the other side of the empire. Yes, travel to Armenia is possible. And there certainly are amazing remains of uh, buildings and monuments from Arsakid, Armenia, roughly 63 CE to 428 CE. So, you know, it's it's a, a just like the textual sources, the archaeological sources are sort of a variegated landscape. Uh, not every part of it is equally accessible, and it will remain an important task for researchers to try to unify all of these disparate threads into, you know, a single cohesive strand going forward. I think all of this is really helpful information. It's very interesting information. I think you're right. It's very important that, you know, if you can't go and you can't, you're not someone who can go and get on a on an excavation. Yeah, there are definitely ways to get involved. And I would hope that people would want to be involved. So I think it's a very good, important reminder. Now, I want to get back just a little to something a little closer to what you do, which is Rome and Persia. 
and this is partly due to just my unfamiliarity with the time period. Again, I did not really do specialize in Rome, and I definitely didn't specialize in Persia. I was Greek through and through. So for anyone out there wondering as well, okay, so you have mentioned before that the Parthian Empire and Rome quarreled a lot, but also they kind of had to deal with each other. So who exactly in Rome was wanting to quarrel or quarreling, right, with whom in the Parthian Empire at this point in time? Yeah, sure. Well, the answer changes as you make your way through Roman history, because when the Romans and Parthians first kind of come into contact with one another, Rome still has a republican system of government. This is in the the first century BCE, and um, the first set of Romans who deal with the Parthians, sometimes as, as enemies, but other times as sort of interlocutors and imperial partners, they're the, the sort of warlords that come from the last couple generations of the Roman Republic. Lucius Cornelius Sulla is one. Pompey, Julius Caesar's opponent, is another. Uh, probably the most famous battle in Roman Parthian history is fought in 53 BCE. The Romans are headed by Marcus Licinius Crassus, one of the members of the Triumvirate, um, the Gang of Three, which dominated Roman political life in the 60s and 50s BCE. So Crassus goes and decides to wage a campaign of conquest in Parthia, he hopes to kind of tread the path of Alexander the Great, and he is handed one of the most devastating defeats in Roman military history, where, yeah, multiple legions are wiped out, about 10,000 Romans end up as POWs in the Parthian Empire. So um, certainly there are these moments of conflict in the late Republic. Then, of course, Rome undergoes a very brutal and devastating series of civil wars and emerges, comes out the other side with a quasi-monarchy in all but name. And then the primary interlocutors for the Parthians are the emperors. And, you know, arguably from the Parthian point of view, you know, okay, this makes a little bit more sense. Now there's somebody over there in Rome, they're handling their political business in a way that resembles ours a bit more. So that's not to say that they are able to deal with one another in an entirely pacific manner once Rome turns into a virtual monarchy, but there are sort of um, highly interconnected and more frequent relations between the emperors in the Mediterranean and the Arsacid kings in the Iranian plateau and Mesopotamia. Sometimes they fight, sometimes they butt heads, but they have other kinds of contact as well, both through diplomacy and trade and religious exchange, and they cross-pollinate. And that's sort of what I have, that's the theme I have been interested in for, you know, most of my career as a scholar. What does that cross-pollination look like? Of course, it's partly characterized by war, but there's lots of other things that go on as well. I'm sure. I mean, trade all across the ancient world was a huge deal. I mean, that's why we have a lot of artifacts that we find everywhere, right, that don't necessarily belong to where it was found. So, yeah, we do know that cross-cultural interactions was a huge part of the ancient world, especially since they didn't have these modern concepts of, like, borders the way we do. So you can just kind of go to and find yourself in a in a different land, I suppose. But... 
we've learned that, you know, the Parthian Empire has a very colorful, very long history. And I'm kind of curious. So in your opinion, when we think of modern reception studies and media, if you're going to see the Persians, you're going to see probably an Achaemenid. You're probably going to see a Darius or a Xerxes or something of the like. But if the Parthians were there for quite a long time, why do you think we don't see more modern media that has anything to do with the Parthians? You know, if, if the Parthians are there, they're maybe mentioned kind of like as a side thing or you'll you'll see them very quickly. But why have we not made some sort of, you know, Game of Thronesy type thing with the Parthians? Because I'm sure, right, that you could make some dramatic series with them. Yeah, well, arguably we did, sort of. It's a sort of weird fact about um, American theater history that, if I'm not mistaken, the first play that was put on in America, or rather the first play that was written and produced in America, was called The Prince of Parthia. It was by a playwright named Thomas Godfrey, who wrote in the 18th century. And yeah, it was, it was put on in, in Philadelphia. It's a very weird sort of text. It's kind of if William Shakespeare did the Parthians. Um, it's a it's a sort of tragedy in the in the vein of William Shakespeare, who certainly has in, influenced the author quite a bit. What happened there was that the playwright seems to have read Josephus who was a Roman author writing in Greek. He's a, He comes from Judea and uh, is a captive after the Judean revolt, but wrote a few sections of his history deal with Parthia relatively intimately. And this 18th century American playwright seems to have read that passage in Josephus and said, I want to make, I want to write a play about that. And I want to draw a cast of characters and use the Parthians as a kind of, you know, far away mystical Eastern court that could furnish, you know, the sort of prince who fell hopelessly in love with a princess, despite the fact that their love was forbidden in some way. So, you know, we sort of did do something along the lines of what you're talking about. It was just a couple of centuries ago. And obviously, that's not uh, one of the more performed <laughs> works in American theater today. Yeah, as to the question of why they're they're less known than other pre-Islamic Iranian empires, I think the internal source situation has something to do with that. Because we do have relatively little written by the Arsacid kings and the Parthian ruling classes themselves, there just isn't the same kind of, you know, instantaneous recognition of a Parthian king in the same way that when you see the Behistun inscription, you know, you know, that's Achaemenids, Persians. Um, another thing that made the Achaemenids really big in early modern Europe and then later what we usually call the West is the fact that Cyrus the Great, the founder of the empire, had a biography written about him by a Greek guy, by Xenophon, and that biography went on to be, you know, a very popular piece of literature, a sort of almost training manual in a way, a kind of mirror for princes in early modern Europe. Um, there's no real exact equivalent of that in Parthian history. We don't have a kind of biographic treatment of our shock, our sakes, or vologaises, in the same way that we do Cyrus the Great. So Parthian history kind of has, um, you know, some ground to make up in that regard. 
it's not one of the more instantly recognizable features of pre-Islamic Iran. Although, you know, when you think of some of the representations of ancient Iranian empires in the media that we're accustomed to, something like the 300 movie, for instance, you know, maybe it's a, a blessing in disguise that the Parthian Empire hasn't gotten a treatment quite like that one. That's true. There's something to be said. I, you know, 300 is a lot of things. It could be an educational tool. It can be just a movie that is terrible. It can be a it can be a lot of things, let's just say. But yeah, no, I just, I find it interesting that, uh, like, I knew the Parthian Empire was a thing. I just, I remember as a young undergrad, I definitely struggled to find materials that could quickly sort of give me a, a, an overview of it, right? That's not just reading like a scholarly tome that I didn't really have time to read as I was trying to pursue my studies. So yeah, I think it's a shame, though, that we haven't done more and especially since we seem to be living in a time of like ancient world revival where in in the past maybe what 10 years there have been so many things done based off of you know greek mythology or roman history so yeah i think we we definitely have to make up some ground now i'm going to segue that right into you know what might help make it easier to introduce people to it either, you know, before grad school, before undergrad, you know, is there a way to make it easier to just do a little introductory thing about the Parthians that's accurate and interesting? Is this something we could put in a high school? Well, I think the the main answer to that has to do with resources for undergraduates, which when I started to research and write about this topic in, let's say, 2014 or so, there really just weren't many basic, readable, accessible treatments in English. Uh, if you wanted to, let's say, teach the teach a unit about the Parthians in a like world history to 1500 CE course, there wasn't a whole lot that you could draw on. That situation is changing now. I mean, there has been in the past, let's say, 10 years or so, more interest in Parthia, both because it has not been especially well-treated in previous scholarship, but also because our view of the ancient world has gotten more expansive and we've recognized the point and the virtue of putting different parts of the ancient world in dialogue with one another. I mean, even if your only goal, your sole goal is to understand the Greeks better, let's say, or, or to understand the Romans better, um, the Achaemenids and then later the Parthians were sort of the primary people against which the Greeks and Romans defined themselves. So when they figured out, when they worked out their notions of what a Greek was or what a Roman was, a lot of what they were defining in contrast to is found over on the Iranian side. So if all you want to do is figure out the Greeks and Romans better, it still pays to study the Parthians on their own terms or study the Achaemenids on their own terms, try to figure out what is Greek discourse and what is the underlying reality. And I think the, the more resources we get for the Parthian Empire or for pre-Islamic Iran generally, uh, the easier it will be to introduce undergraduates to the history of this this great civilization and this, this civilization of world historical importance to assign a chapter, let's say, from a companion on, let's say, Arsacid versus Roman administration compared. 
what do we know about how the Parthians managed their empire versus how the Romans managed their empire? If we put those two things in dialogue, what do we learn? The more resources we get and the more sort of companion style volumes we get on the Parthian Empire. And there there are some forthcoming and and they will, I think, be hitting the market within the next few years. The more resources like that we get, you know, A, we improve our general background knowledge about Parthians, but B, we also hopefully get more people interested in the Parthians, both on their own terms and as, let's say, one empire in the broader tapestry of world empires. And that can only lead to good things. The more people are involved in the enterprise, either as experts or as comparative historians or as general readers, the more resources they have to work with, the more they can do. And these are not the kinds of things that I think change overnight, but with time and you know, with, um, with more accessible treatments of the topic, the lay of the land can change, and it hopefully will. I hope so, too. And so as someone who got to where you did, you started and you had to sort of approach it in a very circuitous path. But I mean, most people, let's be honest, have to just because of sort of we're still making up ground. So what advice, you know, would you want to give to someone who says, I want to go study the Persians. I want to go study the Parthians. Basic advice for getting their start. Sure. Well, if uh, you're an undergraduate, and, and that's that's where your, your question is sort of directed, is at the, the undergraduate level, um, I would say the challenge in Parthian history is you want to go sort of big and small at the same time. You want to you have a big overarching view and a relatively tight focused view. I think that the way that you get the tight focused view, the way you go small is to study one language that was important to Parthian history in some way, learn it well and learn everything you can about the culture that uh, that produced texts in that language. So that could be Akkadian and you could be su- super interested in um, the urban administrative traditions of Mesopotamia or Mesopotamian civic religion, something like that. That's an important language in the Parthian Empire. If you learn it and learn about the people who produce text in that language in detail, you'll satisfy, I think, the, the kind of expert knowledge that if you wanted to go on to further study at the graduate level, it would stand you in good stead and it would you know, put you on a good footing. But you also want to go big. You don't want to just only study one particular language and one particular culture within the Parthian milieu, you also want to read broadly, read about, you know, the comparative history of global empires, become a little bit proficient in Han China, Mauryan India, Parthian Iran, and the Roman Empire, or let's say uh, Mayan history in in the New World. Think about big sort of trans-historical intercultural themes become really well-versed, not just on your, your one particular corner of ancient history, but how that corner of ancient history speaks to big questions which are important across the humanities, across the social sciences. And you could, let's say, turn up to a political science department and say, these are the kinds of questions I'm asking about 
my corner of ancient history. And the political scientists will be able to say, ah, I recognize those questions. I deal with those themes in my work as well. I think if you try to balance those priorities, do on the one hand, a kind of tight focused language learning centric approach to one particular culture on the one hand, and then a kind of macroscopic, big historical questions, comparative history focus on the other, you could do, you know, any number of things. You could go on to graduate school and you would be well positioned to do that by virtue of the linguistic study you've done and the expertise you've gathered in whatever corner of the Parthian Empire you've picked. And, you know, it could be Mesopotamia, it could be Greek and Roman literature, it could be uh, Iranian inscriptions, it could be Zoroastrianism, whatever. But you'll be prepared to go on to further study if you want. But by virtue of keeping focused on on the big questions, on the sorts of issues that animate not just ancient historians, but all historians, political scientists, anthropologists, scholars of literature, etc. If you keep focused on those questions and learn how to study them methodically, you can go on to any number of career paths if you decide that, you know, advanced study in Iranian studies or classics or whatever isn't for me, you're still superbly well prepared to to do any number of jobs in in education, in museum studies, in politics and advocacy, or in NGOs, you know, whatever. The the possibilities are endless and you'll be prepared to do that by virtue of your large scale study of human history and the issues that matter in it. That's really, really great advice because I think people get lost in trying to specialize right down to the, you know, I want to be an expert in this one thing. So I think it's it's really handy to be able to know, yes, but you should also get a well-rounded approach so you can sort of have transferable skills, which are quite important later. So if you wouldn't mind, I should add also that I think the comparative historical approach will be really important, even if you do specialize in Parthian history or Achaemenid history or whatever. I mean, one challenge in studying the ancient past is that we don't have as much evidence as scholars of other regions and time periods have. And, um, you know, you're not going to necessarily know anything for sure about pre-Islamic Iran if you, let's say, study early modern European history or something like that, and and you're f- conversant with the big debates in, um, I don't know, uh, Mayan studies or something like that. But what you will be prepared to do is say like, well, in this part of the world, it works this way. You know, is there any reason to think that it might have operated in a drastically different way in the Iranian context, the answer might be no, the answer might be yes, it'll depend on the issue and it will depend on you know what kinds of evidence you've looked at. But mining other proximate fields of history for new perspectives is an absolutely pivotal task for a historian of ancient Iran and especially the Parthian Empire, where we have relatively little internal evidence. Comparative history is a great way to kind of play around with what we can fill in and what else we can do using the histories of other cultures. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So I have two final questions for you that I hope will stimulate both you and our audience. And the first of which is, what do you think is the greatest legacy left to us from ancient Persia? Ooh, very good question. Well, let's see. I mean, the obvious sort of low hanging fruit there is that there is still centered on the modern day nation state of Iran, 
uh, an imperial formation, you know, a, a part of the world which tends to be unified under one central authority and which tends to exert influence over proximate regions. I mean, when we read in the news that, you know, Iran is exercising influence in Syria or in Yemen or in Afghanistan or in Iraq, you know, I think we we should recognize that this is part of a very, very long imperial history, that this part of the world has a kind of coherence and tends in various eras, you know, throughout time in various ways and to various degrees, but it tends to exert uh, force and power as a coherent unit. So in a lot of ways, we are still living in the world of ancient Iran because Iran is still a power of global importance and of world historical importance. That's not to say, of course, that you know the modern nation of Iran is exactly the same as any of the empires of pre-Islamic Iran. A lot of history has intervened. A lot of things have changed. The advent of Islam is, of course, you know, something that fundamentally remade the region. And of course, I would never want to downplay the influence of that. Uh, but at the same time, there are reoccurring patterns in Iranian history which did not stop with the Arab conquest and continue up until the present day. So anyone interested, I think, in understanding the region of the Middle East and its connections to adjacent regions would do really well to look at Iran's long imperial history, which, which is still with us in so many ways. Um, the other, I think, legacy, which I, which is very powerful and impactful and goes all the way back to the Achaemenids, in my view, is that the Achaemenid Empire is arguably the first kind of global empire, the empire which really makes an impact on a global scale that ties together the histories of three different continents, of, of Asia, of Africa, of Europe, and rules over an amount of territory which, you know, is just unprecedented at the time. And I think that empire and the ones that follow it are really important if you are considering the question of pluralism. And by that, I mean, how do a number of different groups, be they different linguistic groups, religious groups, ethnic groups, or different groups along other lines of identity, how do they coexist and how are they to be unified into a single whole? How do you manage pluralism? How do you manage the competing claims of a diverse set of people who are brought together and have to live as part of a single political unit? The Achaemenid inscriptions, the Greek authors who wrote about the Achaemenids, the Parthians, the Sasanians, all of pre-Islamic Iranian history, in my view, is a really rich education in how you study that topic, how you get at th this question of managing diversity and difference, and what the relationship should be between a central authority and the manifold different groups that will always have to live together under the umbrella of an empire. You know, of course, a lot of things have changed since ancient times. Monarchy really no longer has the kind of legitimacy as a form of government that it did in the ancient world. But 
the rule of a powerful central authority centered on one charismatic figure uh, that has not gone away at all. And of course, as we know, because of our experience as Americans, the issue of managing the competing claims and the diverse interests of a host of different political, religious, ethnic, racial groups, those problems are very much still with us. And I think we can understand them better if we look at what is in a lot of ways the oldest expression of that set of problems and by extension, the oldest sort of approach to dealing with it. That is, I think, what we see under the Achaemenid kings and under the subsequent empires of Iran as well. Yeah, I mean, those are really important things to think about. And I, you know, when I think of what they left to us, it is really quite incredible what they managed to accomplish in the ancient world. Um, and it is quite incredible that we still see vestiges of what they started still floating around today. And it's even more incredible that you can kind of look to see what they did as a roadmap to see, well, are we mirroring that? Are we not? Are we diverging? So yeah, no, I think that that's a great answer for several legacies. I mean, of course, it's hard to pick just one. So of course, there's so many different legacies left to us. So yeah, those are two really good ones. The last question I have for you, though, is what do you think would be the best legacy that we ourselves can leave for future students of Iranian studies? Oh, what a wonderful question. Well, I think the best we can do for any subsequent researcher of Arthia or the Achaemenids or the Sasanians or Iran more generally is to leave the field in a better place than it was when we inherited it. Um, to some degree, that will mean you know getting on with scholarly work, publishing new ideas, debating one another, trying to bring in new perspectives, and so on. We can also do the kind of work that we were discussing not long ago. We can do the kind of scholarly groundwork that will make it easier for new and diverse kinds of students to come to this topic in the future. There's a very high sort of buy-in cost with studying ancient Iran because the, the subject is so sprawling, as the empires were. It encompasses so many different ancient peoples who spoke so many ancient languages, who left so many different kinds of texts, so much different than various material culture, and uh, a bewildering array of evidence in a lot of ways. You know, we can help subsequent generations by bringing those sources together, by translating them, by writing readable, accessible things which explain to general audiences the significance of this evidence, the significance of the people that produced the evidence, and the reasons why someone with a general interest in figuring out world history or even just figuring out the way the world works, why is this topic important to them and um, why will they be better positioned to, to do whatever sort of work it is they're doing? Once they've taken this evidence into account, once they've thought seriously about this history and the problems inherent to it and dealt with the challenge of this topic in a way that is impactful for their life and hopefully that they can contribute to in some way, shape or form. So, yeah, I think that the, the process of translation, consolidation, accessibility and um the introduction of the topic to ever 
wider audiences. That's the greatest thing we can do for the field. And that hopefully will bring more people onto the venture in due time. The other uh, aspect of this, of course, we've, we've also touched on, which is we can help people who are not studying ancient Iran as specialists, but are interested in, you know, long durée, trans-historical and trans-regional questions. We can give them accurate, accessible and and useful information to work with. So I think we we do ourselves a favor and we do the broader public a favor to the degree that we make the field more accessible and an exploitable resource for all sorts of people. I agree. Well, make opening the ancient fields and making them accessible both to a general public and to future generations is important for for all the ancient studies, but especially for for something like Iranian studies, which there's a bit of a gap, right? Just to be honest with with the other sort of regions that that one could choose from. So, I think that definitely finding, you know, leaving leaving something better than you found it is um I don't know. It's just it's it's a wonderful idea. And, and I know that we're getting better. And the work that many young, wonderful scholars are doing, yourself included, are bringing us closer to that goal. And I and I hope that, you know, we continue to see it move so that the, the future will will be very bright indeed for scholars in Iranian studies. Well, I hope so. But I also, you know, I want to point out that the kind of work you're doing with uh, with your podcast and with your other initiatives at the Cordovood Center, this is absolutely pivotal, absolutely vital. And, you know, I think anyone who's paying attention realizes that if ancient studies in general, to say nothing of pre-Islamic Iran, but if ancient studies in general is to survive, it, it must engage new publics, it must bring new stakeholders aboard, and scholars, you know, must be more effective as communicators to all sorts of audiences, not just ones that are within the ivory tower. So, um, you know, I, for my part, am grateful to uh, to you for the invitation and also more generally to the initiatives that you're behind at the Port of Wood Center. I can't leave it better than that. So I will not try. But I wanted to thank you so much for joining me once again. I mean, this has been such a such a pleasure. And I, you know, I hope we get to see you again and, and do something in the future. It, it was My great pleasure, and yes, I hope we'll see one another again soon. Legacies of Ancient Persia is a Port of Oud podcast production, hosted and edited by Lexi Henning, with select episodes co-hosted by Marissa Stevens. Cover art provided by Hadley Leesman and original music by Brent Arhart. Established in 2017 as the premier research center for the study of ancient Iran, the mission of the Portavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World is to engage in transformative research on all aspects of Iranian antiquity, including its reception in the medieval and modern periods, by expanding on the traditional domains of old Iranian studies and promoting cross-cultural and interdisciplinary scholarship. Thanks for listening to our show. It's available to stream on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Portavood Institute and at Portavood UCLA. Or visit our website, portavood.ucla.edu. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review us. For podcast inquiries or questions about the Portavood Institute, please email us at portavoodpodcastproduction at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we continue our deep dive into the legacies of ancient Persia.